Good evening, listeners and students of Hitler's Table Talk. Thanks for joining us for this very special show, our final Table Talk program, episode 56. It is April 23, 2015. I'm Carolyn Yeager. And I'm Ray Goodwin. And I want to say to you, Ray, we've made it to the grand finale, haven't we? <laughs> uh, we I think we've done well, my friend. <laughs> Well, we're in the we're in our final stretch here, and the thing I thought about is the show as the opening music was playing. Oh, I'm going to miss hearing that beautiful music. Yeah, uh, that's and it really got familiar. Oh, it's just so it's so beautiful, and I just want to remind the listeners since I mentioned it that that is um, by Richard Wagner, and it is Siegfried's Idol, written in honor of the birth of his son Siegfried. Mm-hmm. It's not part of one of the operas, so that's uh, that's what we've been using for this program. And you know, I feel almost like someone who's just completed a marathon, or at least I'm excited and thrilled to be crossing the finish line. It's not that it's been uh, a grueling experience or anything like that. It's been most enjoyable, but I am ready to move on to other things. And this has actually been a difficult book to read and try to give the listeners sufficient background information and uh, so that they can make sense of it. Yeah, I, I found it quite challenging. How about you? I, uh, well, like you, I've enjoyed the whole trip, you know, from the first page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. On and on, and, and uh, yeah, you're correct. Uh, you know, some aspects of this uh, particular study don't lend itself to easy teaching or, or passing on or whatever, but I think reading straight from the text you commenting how that struck you or what how you interpreted it and and, and me uh, you know I think we've traveled the road pretty well and I'm really really pleased uh, you know that uh, this is ending up the way it's ending up we've just got this one page left this evening yeah. but well, let me just I consider it one of the most powerful the... oh I'm sorry yeah let me before I get into that let me just comment about the uh that I think that th- this book was more difficult by far than reading The International Jew. And uh, mm-hmm. I think because, for one thing, it wasn't written for public consumption, so it wasn't mm-hmm. written in a very, you know, real professional way to make it easy to read and so on, and mm-hmm. enjoyable and all that. But it was uh, it's the private thoughts and words of Adolf Hitler within his own personal space and among his personal friends and associates and so there are a lot of things that we uh, had to find out what they meant and what they were and so on. And like you said, sure. just said, I think we were pretty successful in helping the listeners gain a great deal from from this book and this reading. And that's what I mean by I think it was challenging. It certainly took yes. more time from me than preparing for an international Jew did. So... Uh, and I'll just uh, throw in here, since it seems to fit right at this moment, I want to thank Richard from Chicago for his very kind donation today. And I'm mentioning it here because uh, I'm, I'm sure he's listening to this show, or he will listen to it. And just to tell you, Ray, we've got a caller on the line, but it's not a caller, it's just a listener. And I see how Hello. this is now. It's just the listening part is lit up here. So we've got somebody hanging on here uh, listening to us who maybe has trouble getting listening to blog talk, I don't know. But anyway, welcome to him uh, or her, whatever. 
And so, uh, you let were, me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, that is that listener area code seven one three. Yes, it is. Well, wonderful yes. because I had a friend, friend over there. <laughs> yes, and it's in Houston. And uh, they said they were going to try to tune in this evening, and uh, so uh, that's good. Maybe that's them. Houston's a big place, but yeah, maybe that's well, I wouldn't them. be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, good. So, okay. Well, welcome to Houston. <laughs> Come in, Houston. Mm. All right. Um, well, so you you're going to move on now to our reading for tonight, and that's just perfect. And I'm going to switch over to that other page with that on it. And you go ahead now, Ray. I won't interrupt you anymore. I don't have any timeline for it either. I just forgot about that part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The last entry, the night of the 29th and 30th of November, 1944. Jesus and St. Paul. Christianity, a Jewish maneuver. Christianity and communism. National Socialism, the implacable enemy of everything Jewish. Jesus, <clears throat> the Fuhrer says, Jesus was most certainly not a Jew. The Jews would never have handed one of their own people to the Roman courts. They would have condemned him, condemned him themselves. It is quite probable that a large number of the descendants of the Roman legionaries, mostly Gauls, were living in Galilee, and Jesus was probably one of them. His mother may well have been a Jewess. Jesus fought against the materialism of his age and therefore against the Jews. Paul of Tarsus, who was originally one of the most stubborn enemies of the Christians, suddenly realized the immense possibilities of using, intelligently and for other ends, an idea which was exercising such great powers of fascination. He realized that the judicious exploitation of this idea among non-Jews would give him far greater power in the world than would the promise of material profit to the Jews themselves. It was then that the future St. Paul distorted with diabolical cunning the Christian idea. Out of this idea, which was a declaration of war on the golden calf, on the egotism and the materialism of the Jews, he created a rallying point for slaves of all kinds against the elite, the masters, and those in dominant authority. The religion fabricated by Paul of Tarsus, which was later called Christianity, is nothing but the communism of today. Bormann intervened. <coughs> this is Bormann speaking. Jewish methods, he said, have never varied in their essentials. Everywhere they have stirred up the plebs against the ruling classes. Everywhere they have fostered discontent against the established power. For these are the seeds which produce the crop they hope later to gather. Everywhere they fan the flames of hatred between peoples of the same blood. It is they who invented class warfare. And the repudiation of this theory must therefore always be an anti-Jewish measure. In the same way, any doctrine which is anti-communist, any doctrine which is anti-Christian, must, ipso facto, be anti-Jewish as well. The National Socialist doctrine is therefore anti-Jewish in excelsis, for it is both anti-communist and anti-Christian. National Socialism is solid to the core. 
and the whole of its strength is concentrated against the Jews, even in matters which appear to have a purely social aspect and are designed for the furtherance, furtherance of the social amenities of our own people. The Fuhrer concluded, Bergdorf, excuse me, Bergdorf has just given me a paper which deals with the relationship between communism and Christianity. It is comforting to see how, even in these days, the fatal relationship between the two is daily becoming clearer to the human intelligence. And that's how Hitler's table talk concludes. <clears throat> right. Right. Quite an ending. Um, yes. I must say, uh, very effective. I didn't know mm -hmm. that it was meant. It was meant that way. It just happened that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. I, I know you have things to say about this, <clears throat> but what just occurred to me as you were reading it now was that Borman uh, is saying, is trying to to say that National Socialism is anti-Christian. And a lot of National Socialists at that time would have disagreed with him. And Hitler right. never allowed him to say or, you know, make it any kind of policy or anything like that, which he uh, often tried to do. <laughs> and, you know, right. kind of sneak it in here and there uh, that National Socialism was anti-Christian. But here they're just talking, yeah. and, and Hitler apparently is not in disagreement with him, uh, or is not going to make an issue of it anyway. But they, it never, it was never put out at all that as a as a, as a fact or a policy or anything that National Socialism was anti-Christian. In fact, it was pretty much Christian friendly, uh, for sure. So I, I just that just struck me just now that uh, Borman is yeah. is doing that. Well, it's a good point uh, about Borman. I think that you know, as you say, there were many many National Socialists who were devout Christians, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so for Borman to say the National Socialist doctrine is therefore anti-Jewish and excelsis, for it is both anti-communist and anti-Christian. And the reason I think that Borman would make such a statement was because. He, more than most people, linked Christianity to Jewish origins. And he saw it as a manipulative Jewish uh, power grab. And so he had his uh, opinions. And, and I admired the man uh, for being uh, straight up and honest and speaking his mind. And, uh, uh, you know, and uh, so uh, he was a free thinker. And uh, the fact that he didn't back off or let fear of something religious silence him uh, was a good quality in my estimation uh, to share his ideas with Hitler and his inner circle and and one thing that characterizes Bormann above all is loyalty to the Fuhrer and loyalty to the principles of National Socialism so I have no quarrel with the man's belief uh, about uh, his spiritual uh, uh, let's say comfort or whatever that's his business and so I was not in the least offended by anything Borman said here. So, uh, well, but you know, people will say, Ray, <laughs> this just occurred to me just now, and I have, I have to mm -hmm. say, I guess to be open and uh, fair about it, I have to say that he may have, uh, knowing that these, these talks were coming to an end, he may mm -hmm. have uh, added uh, his words there, which maybe weren't mm -hmm. necessary, uh, but uh, but. And just in order to get that message out there, although Hitler had already said it, 
and Vorman right. was just emphasizing it. And now the other That's thing right. is that uh, Paul of uh, this Paul of Tarsus thing that Hitler has mentioned more in, uh, on other occasions too that that Paul was the real creator of Christianity by by um, manipulating it into something different than yes. than Jesus had in mind uh, and uh, and then um, and he was a Jew and he never really changed that he just changed his name and so on um, I wonder how old this theory is there's it's very common today but I you know Hitler was uh, had seemed to have taken it up and but mm -hmm. I don't know where he got it or where they got it Mormon obviously uh, agreed with all of that as you as you pointed out so uh, but it leaves us it leaves table talk on a note that is runs through table talk probably if not more at least as much as any other theme that we find there that's that's why uh, it seems so appropriate to me me too and, and, and uh Personally, I think that uh, Dietrich Eckert had an influence with that. I think Hitler's reading of uh, uh, different German philosophers, including Nietzsche, uh, also uh, kind of maybe opened his eyes to a different way of thinking uh, and things like this. So, like you said, it, that you know, that well, I think something he had brand that way of thinking way, way back. <laughs> you know, yeah, as, a, yeah. as a teenager, he was already mm -hmm. not not a believer in Christianity. He wasn't, right. you know, and but he he was still respectful of, yes. of of his elders and tradition and his mother and all of this stuff. So he didn't go around uh, making a problem about that. That wasn't his right. his main interest or his main thing was, uh, you know, to change religion. He really was just incidental uh, that it came out in his, during his uh, regime. Because of his relation, because of he had to have a relationship with the churches, which were very powerful. Um, right. So, uh, but you know, it's it's not something that uh, that he ever made a big deal of. But he lost that religious feeling shortly after he, you know, adolescence. I would say, you know, after mm -hmm. he stopped being a child and was very impressed with with the monastery and the church and his in where he lived and so on. Right? That was the only grand thing that was going on and it was really his aesthetic sense, his as an artist, that made him uh, become so fond of the church and hang out there uh, and even think about maybe that's where he would, you know, uh, go into a vocation or something for a short while. You know how many, I, you know, young people think like that. It doesn't last very long. Right passing thing but but it was really uh the only place that he saw a, a form of art and uh, you know architecture or these buildings and so on and and grand things that attracted him very much but later um he uh dismissed all that and he never was religious uh and then like right. you say you brought up Dietrich Eckert and he and Dietrich Eckert talked about that Eckert was very anti-christian and mm -hmm. Eckert was kind of like his mentor in in a lot of ways. Exactly. Um, so uh, he couldn't have uh, he didn't escape that. He just didn't. Uh, he just when when he was building the party, he knew what the German people how they felt and how they believed, and he wasn't going to go against That's right. that. And I That's don't right. consider that hypocritical at all. It was uh, no. even more respectful, but it was also smart politics. You know, I mean. 
Sure. He, he had to do sure. it, so. He didn't rock uh, the boat. And, <clears throat> that's right. And, mm -hmm. uh, Carolyn, the last two sentences that conclude that section right there and end the book, let me go with those one more time. Bergdorf mm -hmm. has just given me a paper which deals with the relationship between communism and Christianity. It is comforting to see how, even in these days, the fatal relationship between the two is daily becoming clearer to the human intelligence. Very important right there because that little phrase, it's comforting to see how, even in these days. Now, those days were late no November uh, 1944, and the Russian onslaught was pushing its way further and further into Europe. The fight against the communist beast was not going the way of National Socialist Germany by any means. And and you would have, you know, what he's saying there is, you know, the, the communists are closing in here and uh, for people to start seeing and recognizing a relationship between communism and Christianity, uh, that that people were still seeing that relationship rather than just, uh, you know, letting it go and, and uh, not paying any attention to it. So the, he says the fatal relationship between those two is daily becoming clearer to the human intelligence, linking Christianity to communism. And they weren't the only ones that, that did that or thought that way. But And as you say, it's it's not that uncommon today to, to uh, link the two. Uh, some of the basic tenets of the two are indeed uh, communal, communistic in nature. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, well, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's all very true. And, you know, I'll just say here, I guess it's, it's um, pertinent here. I want to re uh, remind the listeners, if they didn't pick up on it yet, that we are doing, we're scheduled for two hours tonight. So we can go two hours with no problem. And then we can even go longer than that um, off the off the, the live uh, show for tonight, but we'll still be recorded if we want to. So if we take our time here, uh, don't think that uh, we're, this is all we're going to say. We've got a lot, lot to say <laughs> planned. So, but I, I do want to add here. Now what was it that I wanted to add? See now I went and pushed it out of my out of my mind. <clears throat> so therefore I don't have to add it. Um Christianity, oh well, uh I don't know. All right, well, we might come back to it again. Yeah, it'll pop it'll it'll pop into my mind and I can yeah, fit it in somewhere else. But that's what happens. I think of something that I hadn't planned on, you know, it just pops in my mind and if I don't say it right away it disappears. That's the way my mind functions now. So I'm going to um, just go back to uh, my other page. And Ray, you were going to start out, start us out if if you're done talking about this last correct portion. Yes. Um, and and so you know now we're going to talk about the book as a whole. Right. And uh, I appreciate. Uh, you know, you're letting me take off with this, Carolyn, because uh, I'm going to make a little personal statement here about Table Talk, what it's meant to me, uh, and uh, this uh, journey that we've taken through it. Uh, and mine is more of a generalization, this statement, uh, and I know you're going to get into specifics, and 
and I will too just a little bit, uh, you know, later in the show. But I'm just going to take off with this. This is uh, <clears throat> my own feelings about when we started this over a year ago and how we've wound up today. Uh, <clears throat> when Carolyn proposed this study of Hitler's Table Talk, there were some negative messages implying, why are you wasting your time on a forgery? Hitler's Table Talk is just as much a fake as those Hitler diaries. It's the work of Martin Bormann. Thus, my primary purpose in reading Table Talk was to decide for myself if the book was indeed the words of the Fuhrer or was it a fake. After some 56 weeks of study, my conclusion reached actually after a very short time is that this compilation is indeed the authentic words of the Fuhrer and that the time spent reading this book has been well invested and worth it. I also concluded that those who spoke negatively at the idea of such a study did so for one of two reasons. They had not read the book for themselves, had just taken someone else's word for it, or they want to discourage others from reading it. Now, what is it that would prompt someone to discourage others from reading this book? Number one, it reveals that Adolf Hitler was not the demonic madman as portrayed to the world, but was certainly a most intelligent, thinking, and rational individual. Number two, reading the book prompts rethinking, a reassessing of what we've been told and taught about the man and of National Socialism. What did Table Talk do for me regarding my own beliefs about the Fuhrer and National Socialism? Hitler's Table Talk was an affirmation of the greatness of both. Did Table Talk demonstrate the statesmanship of Adolf Hitler? Well, it certainly did. But it also revealed Hitler the man. The entire book demonstrates the remarkable knowledge possessed by the Fuhrer on such a vast array of topics, not only history and religion, but architecture, art, music, dancing, archaeology, food, race, and an understanding of people. His empathy for the common man, his burning impetus to make life better for so many people. Table Talk affirms his love of children and animals, his moral uprightness, his value of the physical and mental fitness of his people, his own health, uh, his own health regimen of no smoking, no alcohol. Table Talk revealed his prankishness and his sense of humor as a youngster mm -hmm. as well as an adult. Learning all of these things and more through Table Talk plainly reveals why Jews and those who have swallowed Jewish lies would discourage the reading of this book, calling it a forgery and a waste of time. The enemy cannot deny his contributions through National Socialism of ending unemployment, the autobahning, the Volkswagen, vacations for the working people, Hitler's dedication to cleaning up German cities, making high culture more available to the masses, using his influence to make the courts and justice system more fair and equitable through common sense. In short, the Fuhrer embodied and stood for the very virtues necessary for a safe and sane, well-ordered society. His life, his genius, his actions on behalf of his nation showed the path toward a truly utopian society that could be attained. His greatness was evidenced in Table Talk, but so indeed was his modesty. He was 
a true Renaissance man. And that's what I uh, just embellished. Uh, Table Talk just did so much to point in all of those directions. So why people who are very anti-Hitler, uh, anti-National Socialism, would not want someone to read it because it offers a fair picture of the man himself and nothing that you can attack and ridicule. Sure, there are things in there about race and religion that, that people would take issue with and differ, differ. but thinking people would, would not make them, uh, it would not make them hate the man and demonize him as it has been done for the past uh, many, many decades. So, uh, Carolyn, that's what uh, reading this book has done for me and what it has meant for me, opened the door uh, to, to what an all-around genius that man was. Yeah, did it did it uh, change your mind about anything uh, that no, you No, it was an affirmation, of? you know. I, I uh, mm -hmm. had have read a lot about uh, Hitler, his movement, the early days. Uh, you know, I've read some of the uh, the uh, writings of uh, Goebbels, Rosenberg, Hitler himself, uh, even Goring, and and learned much about National Socialism and. And then, of course, Mein Kampf uh, and, and all. I've read that many, many years ago, and my opinion of the man was always favorable, uh, and I thought his movement was extremely common sense and uh, was not a hate thing towards anyone. And, and uh, you know, when you learn that this, what I was taught in school is a lie. The man was not out to conquer the world. It was, his, his nation was about the size of Texas, and... They're taking on the entire rest of the world, the biggest powers in the world, and they're going to conquer it. <laughs> and it's not just the conquering. You have to occupy it. How ridiculous that claim was. Mm -hmm. And so when I started seeing through that stuff, uh, uh, I think I formed my positive opinions uh, about uh, the man, the nation itself, uh, and, you know, and, and way back, way back from when he was uh, a young man uh, and then his World War One experiences and then in Landisburg and, and all. And, and so, no, this, uh, this, nothing in here was negative to me about him. And, and it, it, it was an affirmation, as I said, Carolyn, it, it affirmed my personal beliefs that I had formed over decades in studying about Hitler and National Socialism. This book was a was a blessing. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you just you discovered it through this through this program we've done together because you weren't even particularly exactly. familiar with this particular book. See, and that's you know, why that's this book has been has been kept down so much mm -hmm. uh, for the that's very reasons you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I meant to say that to you until you mentioned this book to me. And, and asked me would I team up with you and, and do a reading of it, and, and I had never heard of this book. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, you know, that, that one's escaped me, and then uh, I went on Amazon.com. I got a, a copy of the book itself, and I, I was stunned because I didn't even know it was available, you know, and, and so you're right. It, it has been kind of under the radar and kept kind of under wraps by those who don't want us reading anything positive about National Socialist Germany. Well, you know, the same. I I learned about this book uh, quite a, quite a ways back. It had been maybe around 2005 or something, and uh, 2006 maybe. And I was uh, right away. Somebody said, "Oh, this book. You got to read this book." And somebody else said, uh, "Oh, this is Hitler's uh, private talks." You know, 
at the table, and I thought, oh, that's almost too good to be true, you know? And then somebody else said, uh, oh, that's questionable, you know, it's, 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 we don't know if that's authentic or not. We, I don't know whatever word they use, but, um, you know, that's uh, you got to be careful with that and all. And that's, that put me off right away because I didn't want to read anything about Hitler or by, that I thought was by Hitler that, uh, that wasn't real, and I knew, I knew of other things that were fake. So I stayed right. away from it for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just not uh, all that long ago that I always wanted to read it. And I finally, uh, maybe I was thinking about doing the book uh, in this for the study hour. And I asked uh, Hasso Kastrup, who is a, tr- a good, very good translator, lives in Europe and knows a number of languages. And... I asked him about it, or somehow it came up, and maybe he mentioned it or something. But um, and uh, if he if he uh, knew if the book was 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 correct or if it was translated wrongly about the Christianity parts, especially that's what was bothering me. And uh, he said, "No, it's all it's all good," you know. I said, well, how do you know? I was suspicious of him, you know. <laughs> how do you know? What do you, would you and do you have the German? Uh, uh, Editions? Um, yes, he said uh, he did both by Picker and by Heim, and he said uh, there's nothing wrong with the, with the Cameron Stevens translation, which was the only one that was available to us in English. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. and I says, wow, I said I was still I was still uncertain, you know. And I said, well, would you translate some of these uh, passages about Christianity? Uh, I mean, would you you know give them and, and check them all out and see that they're translated? Mm-hmm correctly and he sent me about 12 of them that he translated and said they're all they're all just like what's in the German um, and uh, and that's when it broke through for me and I thought well boy you know and then I wanted to do the book now um, the other thing that I was going to say is that uh, I was uh, nervous about I've always been nervous about Hitler making anti-christian statements back in those days and not up until recently. It was, so this book has been a, a big, has made a big change for me. I, I admit, you know, and I'm happy to say so, that it's really made an impression where I understand now that definitely Hitler, in spite of his public pronouncements and so on, was privately not Christian and hadn't, as I said earlier, really had never been since he was a a child, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I was uh, I was both uncertain about that, and I was also very worried about saying so, and because uh, I didn't want to offend uh, Christians that I knew and liked, and and, sure. and who who are national socialists and are fond of it and think of it as, as Christian, and it fits in mm-hmm. with all of their own philosophies. And this was I was mm-hmm. really sensitive about that. So I was always sure. trying to step around gingerly and and really think of Hitler as as uh, or not, as Christian more than he was or as sort of Christian, you know. I mean, just kind of making it. Um, but after reading the book, Ray and listeners, um, I just can't do that anymore, and it's convinced me a hundred percent. Not that it, um, not that it. Um, well. Uh, I guess it's just that it's Hitler's personal views are simply not Christian. And anybody who wants to make out that they were, I would have to, and, and you know, in the interest of truth, 
simply argue against it or stay quiet, I guess. But, you know, right. I, they're wrong. But, they're just plain wrong. And as, as you said a while ago, Carolyn, you know, uh, just for the fact that, you know, he, he may uh, have said some things that we learn in this book that obviously shows he was not Christian, did not mean in the least that he was anti-Christian. And, uh, and you know, it's like so... Uh, how do Christians feel about uh, other religions of the world and what they think about Christians? And and so uh, they would say, well, they're they're entitled to their opinion about it. And taking on this book uh, to to see if it, we thought it was uh, viable and uh, uh, the real thing, uh, I knew that you were certainly quite capable of uh, critical thinking. And I felt like, well, I am too. And and together reading this thing, we're going to discern pretty quickly if it's a fraud or not. And uh, and mm-hmm. part of it was what was going to be said about the Jews, what was going to be said about the Christian religion. And and the further we got into the book, the picture became clearer and clearer for me, just like it, you said it did for you. And it didn't take long for me to decide that, uh, yeah, these these uh, these fellows that jotted this stuff down at Hitler's dinner table uh, wrote down what the man actually said. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and so well, I accomplished right, my... You know, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I accomplished my purpose right off the bat pretty early, and that was determining whether this book was going to be worthwhile reading or just more warmed over Allied war propaganda or, or a slanted view. Uh, and, well, and, uh, there was, yeah, there was more more on Christianity than I expected. I, I, I only knew of some of them, and I had those the ones that, uh, that Hasso sent to me, and I thought that was all of them. I thought he had sent me all of them. Then as we started reading... Ray, uh, you know, and in the early part, in 1941, he he had some of the most uh, strongest comments <laughs> that are the most objected to, um, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, this is really, this is really strong language, you know. Um, right. That's you know, it was exactly more, right. It was more than I expected, but uh, now that we've been through it, it's been a little over a year, um, I'm uh, quite comfortable with it all, because as you, I mean, I'm a fan of Adolf Hitler, and if, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, think that he uh, shouldn't have said what he said, He and besides, he was talking uh, in private, and the, his people who knew him in private all knew this about him, they all knew it, uh, but he didn't make That's it right. public, and we've already covered that, so uh, now yes. I'm going to, uh, I'd like to make some I'd like to make sure that everyone knows. I did a little, uh, I put this together this afternoon. Good. That everyone knows that the Werner Jachmann German language complete notes taken down by Heinrich Heim, which is called uh, the Bormann Vermerke, or Bormann notes, or maybe, I'm sorry, Bormann Vermerke, however you pronounce that, but it translates Bormann notes which is what the high material is called, is available on the Internet at uh, German... Yeah, well, I'll just say, well, um, it's it's a PDF that's been uploaded by GermanVictims.com. It has a lot of other stuff there. But it's called... Uh, the book is Adolf Hitler Monologue für Hauptquartier. Uh, and it's actually Adolf Hitler's monologue... Or, 
at uh, Pierre headquarters, 1941-1944. And so that, I just learned about that um, when I finally was talking to Hasso again. And I said, I wish I could see the, you know, is there any place where that German is available? And he said, yeah, it's on the Internet. <laughs> Maybe it hadn't been then, you know, when I, earlier. But uh, he told me where to go, and I was just, I wow, oh, here it is. So I started comparing uh, our Cameron and Stevens translation with passages on that, and they all compared perfectly well. And I've asked other people to look at it, and they said, yeah, they don't see any problem with these translations. And a whole lot of what has been said by the critics is that there are terrible, uh, you know, differences in the translation by Cameron and Stevens that, that are, don't fit what's in the original. And that's just not true. It's absolutely untrue. And then on Wikipedia, on their Table Hitler's Table Talk page, they, they say, all editions and translations are based on the two original German notebooks, one by Henry Picker, and another based on a more complete notebook by Martin Vorman. They don't mention Heim. They call it Martin Vorman's, uh, which is often called the Vorman Vermerke or Vorman Notes. That's what they say. Although it's the notes taken down by Heim and stored by Vorman, but they want to, uh, everybody seems to want to make out that even, they even let you believe that Martin Vorman took the notes, you know. Uh, this is a, this is by Martin Borman, and then we know that Henry Picker stood in for Heim between March 12th and September 1st, 1942. But his his notes are not in this uh, German version that I just told you about uh, that GermanVictims.com put up. But uh, they are in the book we're using. They they were added by. Uh, well, uh, what's that guy's name now? Oh, Hugh Hugh Trevor Roper is the editor of that book, and that's put a big a big black mark on that book. Oh, he's a British, and he was a scumbag, and he did write this terrible forward introduction to the book, uh, very very anti-Hitler. But it's not even there on that PDF that I'm using. I took it from, and uh, we didn't read it. We haven't even talked about it or looked at it. You don't have to pay attention to that, but I think the translation by Cameron and Stevens uh, is perfectly good and accurate. So it doesn't matter that it's Trevor Roper. Uh, really, you have to look at the at the other end. And, um, so, uh, okay, I think I've covered all that. And as I said, it dovetails perfectly with the original Heim and Picker notes. Now, I, I haven't seen the Picker notes in German, but others say that it does, so that's not available to me at the moment. But we have all the all the Heim notes in German. And it's been interesting. For, I've looked up a few things when it comes to the word extermination, stuff like that, you know, to see what the original yeah. German word was. I found some interesting yeah. things, which, which I'll mention. Uh, let's see. I want to say something else that Wikipedia says on their page just to show the way they, they slant things. Although considered authentic, contentious issues remain over particular aspects of the work, including the reliability of particular translated statements within the French and English editions, 
Well, I, I've just dealt with that. And, you know, they keep bringing up the French, but uh, the uh, Cameron and Stevens um, translated from the German. So the French, the French edition by this Junot, Genot doesn't have anything to do with it as far as I know. But then they also say the questionable manner in which Martin Borman may have edited his notes and disputes over which edition is most reliable. But none of that means anything except how they uh, stick in here Martin Borman saying, and notice the word may, you know. There's no, yes. oh, yeah. it's all speculation. Martin Borman sure. may have changed this, you know. Yes. And so this is a, you know, in a questionable manner. Nothing points okay. to that, uh, but that's uh, that's how they how they do it. So anyway, mm-hmm. onward. Um, do you want to make any comments about any of that? Well, just there at the end, uh, another example that sprung to mind to me uh, about you know where they say Borman may have done this. When I was taking a, a history of Nazi Germany a number of years ago over here to. University of Houston, Victoria, uh, we were assigned to read four or five books, all of them by Jewish uh, authors, and, uh, of course, uh, nearly all of them were uh, so-called Holocaust survivors and whatever, but this one was uh, Lucy Davidovitz, and uh, anyway, and I'm I'm reading that stuff, and and she's talking about... uh, People that are saying this is uh, this couldn't have happened, or whatever they say that there's no written orders uh, to carry this out, and things like this. And she said, "No, there's not any uh, written down, not not anything found." But and, and then she quoted a couple of notes there where this term "final solution" was used, and and she said, uh, "Now this is what the Germans would tell you that this note meant, but what it probably meant was." You know, yeah. death to all the Jews. Yeah, what it probably meant was, see, and and then you heard that uh, Google saying uh, it may have meant this, see, and and they get away with idiocy like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's that's all I wanted to add yeah. to that. That's pretty bad. It's pretty bad that uh, that they get away with it in books that are supposed mm-hmm. to be it by is. scholars and on Wikipedia pages and so on. Well, anyway, so uh, I've. Uh, you, um, the the number one element in Hitler's thinking, uh, I think, is the importance of race. And I read a statement uh, last Monday, but I think I should read it again because it comes from a table talk, but I, I don't know where. Um, I've, I've looked, it's just a number of things I was looking for today and yesterday, but I, I couldn't find them. There's so much to go through, but... I found some of it. If I try to gauge my work, Hitler said, I must consider, first of all, that I've contributed in a world that had forgotten the notion to the triumph of the idea of the primacy of race. So that's what mm-hmm. he is saying that he you know, he feels is the most important of his work. And secondly, sure. I've given German supremacy a solid cultural foundation in fact, mm-hmm. the power we today enjoy cannot be justified in my eyes. And this is the power they were enjoying in, say, 41, 42. Uh, I don't think it was in 43, yes. one of those two years. Right. Um, except by the establishment and expansion of a mighty culture. To achieve this must be the law of our existence. So he's, he's connecting culture 
with race, and he's putting a, a, a high importance on on culture. And and we find that in Table Talk that uh, he his he comments so often on uh, aesthetics and his passion for all the arts, especially architecture. And he talks about artists and uh, in and dance and music and in every every kind of field of art. In culture, he's involved in it, and this is a was the other um, poly what he talked about most, other than than uh, the Christian. That's right. Uh, he talked about that on and you know every so often we were we were covering that. So, but I'm not going to talk about that tonight because it's not controversial. <laughs> I'm going to talk about some controversial things, um, be, uh, but it uh, it's very and we have. We have made that point, I think, many times how that was so important to his uh, personality and and and, and uh, who he was. So, um, and of course, there was also the theme of German expansionism that came up quite often. I, I'm not going to go into that either, uh, because uh, but it uh, it's kind of complex, you know. And, and he spoke of it in uh, in in uh, conjunction with a little the little bit of war talk he did and i think we we did uh, make we have made the point that he didn't really talk about the war once in a while right. you know, it, it came up he said things that were very interesting um but it wasn't a time and a place that he wanted to talk about the war nor would he it was mixed company that uh, you know all the people that worked down there or, you know close to him were there the secretaries there was women and men he wasn't going to discuss these issues um this was just for you know light talk and small talk and him expressing things he felt like he wanted to that were on his mind so uh, uh but he did make this comment which I'll mention uh well we know that he wanted to expand into Ukraine and Crimea for agriculture and natural resources uh, that was his goal and and he said at the outbreak of the first world war many people uh, we ought to look to many people thought sorry we ought to look towards the mineral riches of the west the raw materials of the colonies and the gold for my part i always thought that having the sun in the east was the essential thing for us and today i have no reason to modify my point of view this was on July 8th, no, 27th and 28th, uh, probably at night time, 1941. And this was his general view that he expressed uh, fairly, you know, again, more than once. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, now, the, the, the big thing, of course, um, I've already said the big thing for me was his views on religion. And it, it's... Uh, it, it's the most controversial part of the book. In fact, if you go to um, the Table Talk Wikipedia page, they have a little stuff in the beginning. Then they have a whole long section called Religion, and that's it. They don't <laughs> that's the only thing they discuss there about Table Talk is, is Hitler's views on religion and all the other all the people who disagree with him. So I'm going to uh, to just to show the breadth of the things that he said and the, the variety, uh, the, the direction that they were going in. So I'm going to, I, I took uh, out, um, I've got uh, actually here 20 points, 20 things I'm going to uh, 
comment here on. Um, I'm not going to comment. I'm mostly going to read them. Uh, right. You know, in chronologically, so in 1941, I don't have the, the month here, but he said uh, we don't want to educate anyone in. Oh no! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Uh, July 11th and 12th, 1941. This comes first. Man, this is an extra one. Man has discovered in nature the wonderful notion of that almighty being whose law he worships. Fundamentally, in everything, there is the feeling for this almighty, which we call God. That is to say, the dominion of natural laws throughout the whole universe. And, you know, that was one of the, that was, I think, in the very first section, segment or you know very first reading in the book it started uh, in july maybe it was july 5th or something 41 this is july 11th 12th but uh this is his this is his whole idea in a nutshell here that he's a believer and he's a believer in the, in the almighty force and which we call god he says and he doesn't believe in atheism he absolutely rejects atheism and didn't want mm-hmm. any atheism to enter into Germany or the German people or any, you know, into Europe uh, thought it was, of course, it was Jewish and it was the, the bad thing. But he connects God with uh, natural laws. And he, he believed that when you look at nature and you see how it functions and how it works, that's God is revealing himself throughout the entire universe, you know, is that. so? And so then he went on a little bit later to say, we don't want to educate anyone in atheism. Belief in God is necessary. And on July 15th, 1941, he said the heaviest blow that ever struck humanity was the coming of Christianity. So right there already was a pretty strong statement for those who wouldn't be expecting it and would be surprised by it. And he said Bolshevism is Christianity's illegitimate child. Both are inventions of the Jew. So you can understand what he said here in the beginning and he said at the very end. So you can understand uh, Borman saying what he did and knowing uh, he wasn't uh, going against uh, Adolf Hitler mm-hmm. except in saying what he said about National Socialism. And another well, part I... of this, he says claims, uh, Hitler says claims to bring liberty to men whereas in reality it seeks only to enslave them. Well, Christianity claims both Christianity and communism is what this is supposed to be. Um, uh, claims, and uh, Bolshevism, I mean, claims, claim to bring liberty, where in, in reality they seek only to enslave men. That's pretty strong. I took the strong ones here in some cases. And then he also, on that same uh, day, said, in the long run, here he said, here's, here's where Bowen maybe gets this. <laughs> Uh, he said, in the long run, national socialism and religion will no longer be able to exist together. But he's looking, you know, as you're always calling Hitler far-seeing, you know, he's looking into the future, not right now. Yes. And, uh, right. and he says, uh, without Christianity, we should not have had Islam extinguished. And then he says, he's, uh, he says some other things, but then he means that both of those things, uh, extinguished 15 centuries of civilization at a single stroke. And the 15 centuries of civilization uh, is, uh, he's referring to Greek and Roman uh, civilization, which he was a great fan of um, and saw that uh, these religions uh, just brought us into a kind of a dark ages, which he talks about at different times uh, and describes 
but not real uh, deeply, not not in real detail. But and so now the third one I've got here is that um, actually the fourth, but there will never be any possibility of National Socialism setting out to ape religion by establishing a form of worship. It is our, it is, no, it's one ambition must be scientifically to construct a doctrine that is nothing more than an homage to reason. So he often brings up reason, and he has been known to say in these pages that uh, when he has a Oh, I don't know how to put it, but when he has an important decision to make, or it's a, he goes, he has to approach it through cold reason. You know, he doesn't. He knows how to, uh, in other words, how to separate emotional feelings and so on from decisions that have to be made for the good of uh, the German nation. And uh, some of these I short, you know, shorten quite a bit. Uh, he he's criticizes the church on September. 27th and 8th and 41, and encourages the poor, because he says the church encourages the poor to remain poor. See, now there again is that aspect of him that you mentioned so often, Ray, that, that he cares about the common people, and he did, uh, he brought the the work the level of the working people up, and of course he, he brought the, the, uh, the um, Respect for working people. That was the, the big thing. He brought that way up right. to make them equal partners in the nation. And what they did was right. just as important as what intellectuals did or what uh, military leaders did and so on. So uh, this is the one, he, what he, one of the things he really holds against the church, particularly the Catholic Church, its long history of uh, keeping the poor poorer and mm-hmm. saying that they that God liked them better that way. <laughs> they get to heaven and they get their reward. And he mentions uh, here on October 10th that Christianity and the... Um, he mentions Christianity in relationship to the cultivation of human failure. And uh, that uh, goes along with the communism. And the um, then he... T- on Along... A long one, a long one on October 14, 1941. It's really an important, uh, one of his more important monologues on Christianity. October 14, 1941. He, he, uh, I just actually got down here the, uh, the topic headings that come at the beginning of each one to just show what was in it because I couldn't write it all down. But he, right. uh, he talks about the disadvantages of a concordat with the churches the difficulty of compromising with a lie, that might be that one that I was looking for and didn't find. Hmm. No truck with religion for the party. Um, he didn't want religion in the party. Antagonism of dogma and science. And here, one of the thing, themes that comes up more and more is that we discovered he's a man of a progressive thinking and future forward thinking, and he's more and more embracing science. He believes in science. And uh, he sees that uh, dogma, the religious dogma, when it's against science, and so much of it at that time, you know, really was. They didn't try to uh, move past it like they're doing today. So um, it just didn't fit at all. And he says, uh, he talks about letting Christianity die slowly. We've discussed that before. You know, and he wasn't going to do anything rash. He wasn't going to get into a, a battle with with the churches, he because he he felt that their time was 
was limited anyway because of this because of the rise of science and the metaphysical needs of the soul he talked about and he certainly didn't dismiss the soul and he certainly believed in in the human soul and he says the no state religion well you know he had wanted the state religion and then he's uh, talking about how he's changed his mind about that and uh, he believes in freedom of belief and uh, then he also adds here he thinks you know religious belief should be should be one of the things that people should have a choice on you know you shouldn't dictate to people what their religious beliefs would be unless they get real weird or against the state in Germany you couldn't have religion that was opposed to the state like the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were mm-hmm. because they wouldn't serve in the army you, you know you had to follow all the all the things of the state but then you could have your own beliefs um, but he also added here nothing would be more foolish than to reestablish the worship of Wotan or Votan. Now there, yes. you know, where we have a lot of people who uh, say they're national socialists or who, who mm-hmm. are, or, or, uh, you know, and uh, but they want to bring back those pagan religions. And and there That's was right. a lot of That's people true. in Germany that did. Even uh, Hitler yep. didn't so much want to do that, but he uh, he was open to all of that stuff. And uh, and Hitler was never never was. He never was. He just would make fun of it. He'd say, "Yeah, you can. How are you going to do that? You know, time. We've moved on. You know, we don't. We don't think the same way." And so uh, he he didn't believe in any kind of religious uh, stories. You know, stories that he he wanted people to to grow up and think more sophisticatedly. Like so. Anyway, that was the October fourteenth, forty one in. Uh, October 19th, now, in October 41, he really was really talking about it. And a couple of days later, a few days later, he said, uh, Christianity is a prototype of Bolshevism. There's that theme again. The mobilization mm-hmm. by the Jew of the masses of slaves with the object of undermining society. Uh, and then on the 21st, two days later, he had a long talk about, here's where he brought up Julian the Apostate and who he admired in, from the Roman Empire, and talked about the Aryan origin of Jesus, the distortion of Christ's ideas. You know, when you read, uh, oh, tonight's reading, where he said, yes, uh, Jesus that. could not be a Jew. And he, I've got there's some of that in here, too. Uh, and it makes so much sense. He says that uh, they would never have given one of their own over to the Roman Rome. Corinth. That's right. Uh, yeah, and and, uh, and he uses other reasons why why he couldn't have been a Jew. So that's why he has good reasons for saying that Jesus was not a Jew. And uh, he talks about the road to D- D- Damascus, where he goes into all that story of Paul and so on there, and the Roman tolerance, meaning that Rome was very tolerant of religions, and that was not that didn't turn out so well for them. And materialism in the Jewish religion, and religion as a subversive method. So there, there's a lot of people would relate to that. And the mobilization of the slaves, and St. Paul and Karl Marx, boy, he really, he really um, has no love loss for St. Paul. Then the, right. he says the works of man must perish on the 24th of October. Religion versus science, the church's explanation of natural phenomena. 
science hits back and the church and religious beliefs. So he's talking a lot about the church in that one, but I didn't uh, want to, I didn't take any quotes from it. And again, uh, here's a real, real long one on October 25th. Yeah, that's a, that's a real important one. October 25th, 1941. He starts out with the libraries of antiquity. He talks again about Christianity and Bolshevism, that, he, that they aim at destruction. And he said that Nero did not burn Rome. I remember that vaguely uh, when we read about that. And uh, some Rome was burned, I guess, by the, by the Christians or something, and by somebody. But not by Nero, he didn't think. And uh, he, the hypocrisy of Protestants, the Catholic Church thrives on sin. Well, you know what that means is that uh, the Catholic Church had the power, and only the, they only had they were the only ones with the power for Catholics to forgive sin. You couldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't go and pray to uh, Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness or anything like that. In the Catholic Church, you had to get it through your priest. And so that that kept everybody in the church and and going the to money, the money making project of, of yeah, selling indulgences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but even without that, it kept them there because uh, they knew they were all going to sin all the time. So they had to get that forgiveness uh, because if you had <laughs> sin on your soul, you're not going to get into heaven. You know, you, you're going to have to work it off in purgatory and all these kind of rules. It keeps it, you know, it it keeps the church going and. Uh, mm-hmm. And he talked about the modernist movement uh, back in 41 in October, which I didn't, uh, I don't know, we talked about it more recently. It made more of an impression on me then. And the problem of convents and, you know, all that stuff. And then November 11th, 1941, he said, what is in opposition to the laws of nature cannot come from God. And moreover, he said, thunderbolts do not spare churches. So again, he you know gets back to the uh, natural law business and saying if something is against natural law, it, how can how can it come of God? Because uh, natural law is comes of God. So what else can it come from? You know, <laughs> really. Um, and uh, and more of uh, the same kind of topics. He's bringing up the SS and religion. I think that's where he said that there was the SS was free of religion. I think he was saying that, and, uh, and then he's discussing uh, the Carroll, one of those uh, Protestants, K E R R L, in his government, who was attempting the synthesis between National Socialism and Christianity. And he said then, now on December fourteenth, forty-one, which he he supported at the time back at that time in the 30s, but now he says in December 41 that I don't believe the thing's possible to attempt a synthesis between National Socialism and Christianity. So he had moved away from that, that to that degree. And he sees the obstacle in Christianity itself. Right. Naturally, not in National mm-hmm. Socialism. And he... Uh, so then, this, then he starts talking about in 42, February, we shan't be able to go on evading the religious problem much longer if anyone thinks it's really essential to build the life of human society on a foundation of lies. Well, in my estimation, such a society is not worth preserving. So these are very offensive to people whenever he talks about it being a lie, you know. 
Um, mm -hmm. And then he says, uh, on February 17, 1942, the sensational event of the ancient world was the mobilization of the underworld against the established order. This enterprise of Christianity had no more to do with religion than Marxist socialism has to do with the solution of the social problem. So here he's going pretty strong, too, saying that uh, the rise of Christianity was just an effort to, uh, go to, to destroy the established order, uh, which was uh, the Roman uh, power at that time. And... Um, and then he starts talking about all the money that they have to, that they're paying the German churches. We talked about that not so long right. ago. Oh yeah, we went into that. And uh, and Mia Moeller and so on. Some of this is it's from April '42, but that wasn't all that long ago that we're, we were reading this because the after '42 it gets so short. Um, well, I think I've uh, I've got a few more, but I think I've covered everything. Oh, here's one I want to I don't want to forget. Uh, he said on July 4th, 1942, once the war is over, we will put a swift end to the Concordat. It will give me the greatest personal pleasure to point out to the church all those occasions on which it has broken the terms of it. One need only recall the close cooperation between the church and the murderers of Heydrich. Catholic priests not only allowed them to hide in a church on the outskirts of Prague, but even allowed them to entrench themselves in the sanctuary of the altar. Now, you see, this, this really made him mad. This, he's really holding anger about this. He's, we know how much right. he thought of Heydrich and how important Heydrich was, and that uh, uh, these church people allowed these assassins to hide. And in fact, it was, it, there was this big battle, you know, in this church in Prague uh, where they were finally killed. But uh, and, but even though these were, I suppose, uh, Czech priests, I wouldn't think they would be German priests. He still held it against them because, because uh, the Czechs were under German control then, and uh, and they were supposed to be doing what was you know what their government was telling them because the government was certainly uh, on the German side on Hitler's side about this you know ostensibly. But that these Catholic priests were all of that, and that's why there are so many Catholic priests in Buchenwald and not mostly in Dachau and in some other camps, because not because he hated Catholics and didn't like priests and wanted to arrest them and put them in in the concentration camps. They were put in there because they're all working against against the state, against his state, against his government. They, you know, the, the the priests at that time. The church at that time was very political, and the local churches and the priests and so on were very political. And so many of them were, were I guess you'd say, communist or liberal or, you know, were against uh, national socialism. And they were actively working against it. So they got arrested and they were put away in these places to keep them, you know, out of trouble, to keep them out of the business that they shouldn't be getting into. And uh, they were treated very well, too. At Dachau, they were, all the priests were, they didn't have to work. And they had nice, uh, pretty nice quarters to live in. And they were given a, each one a whole bottle of wine every day. Because they were used to drinking wine. Maybe used to make them happy. Yeah. That it's always uh, shown, promoted as, as how, how he was uh, 
persecuting the priests and the church and so on. It wasn't okay. really true at all. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so there we go. Um, after It also says, after 1938, Hitler began, began to publicly support science. Well, I said this. I'm saying this. After 19, well, I must have read it somewhere. Yeah, this is from Stigman Gall. His book, The Holy Rite, is pretty a pretty good book about uh, Christianity and Hitler and National Socialism. And uh, he said, after 1938, Hitler began to publicly support science, particularly social Darwinism, at the core of Nazi ideology in place of a religious one a development that is reflected in private in his increasingly hostile remarks towards religion in table talk. And, you know, in in the early 30s, well, I wasn't then, it was in the 20s, um, he, was, he was speaking very positively about Christianity. Sometimes uh, there was just a couple of speeches where he said, you know, as a Christian, I feel it's my duty to this and that, you know, but... Uh, I don't know how sincere he was about that because he was speaking to the people. He thought that would be a good, uh, you know, it was real early in his career. And he thought that would mm-hmm. be a good, uh, good point to make with them. But sure. at least he did, he did speak that way then, and people want to think that um, that he continued to, but he didn't. Uh, so what were you going to say, Ray? Well, I just, uh, going back to your start on this religious stuff, uh, when you mentioned, certainly, that we covered in this uh, book about uh, Hitler said absolutely no teaching of atheism. And, uh, and uh, you know, and he talked about the creator and everything. I was just going to say that that is very, very parallel to the beliefs of <clears throat> the men that I consider the greatest of our founding fathers and the, and the smartest, most intelligent, reasonable, rational uh, men who've ever held the office of president of the United States, that ran very parallel with Thomas Jefferson and his uh, deism. Uh, he wasn't an atheist, but he did not embrace the Christian religion either. But he had to play the game uh, because uh, so many people around him were not on his level, and he could have damaged himself because you know how strong the religion, the hold it had at that time, uh, even more so than now. And uh, so, but I'm glad you brought that point up. And uh, let's see, there was one other thing I was going to say about uh, mine. I I picked this short quote from uh, the 20th of May, 1942, where he says, I am firmly opposed to any attempt to export National Socialism. If other countries are determined to preserve their democratic systems and thus rush to their ruin, so much the better for us. And I always liked reading that when I came across it because it, you know, it flies in the face of, well, Hitler was trying to conquer the world, make us all speak German, turn us all into goose-stepping national socialists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He knew that that form of government was German, Germanic, and, and it would work for his people but uh, maybe not for someone else. And he wasn't out to force that form of government on anybody. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, had a lot in the book about uh, colonies. Hitler would mention, you know, when the war is over, we're going we're gonna to make uh, outposts in little towns and things in Ukraine and in Crimea and, and uh, in things like this. Uh, but 
key stress that we will not upset the apple cart by trying to put these people under our form of government, make them uh, do uh, follow our practices and things like this, and leave these people alone and let them have their local beliefs and, and what they do. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, so, you know, we're, we're not out to try to make Germans of them. And uh, mm -hmm. so anyway, that uh, I thought of that uh, on something you were saying a while ago, but that's all I had for that. Okay, well, that's going to come up again if I get to it. Um, you know, I'm taking too long, as usual. That's, that's, uh, I'm famous for that. But uh, this there's a person named Richard Carrier, sticking with this Christianity theme for a little bit. Uh, Richard Carrier is the person that's always quoted, uh, and he happens to be an atheist, you know, but he's quoted by all these Christians who uh, who, uh, who deny table talk and as being Hitler and, and, and use his arguments. And he maintains that much of Trevor Roper's English edition, which is what we're using, is actually a verbatim translation of Janu's French and not the original German. But you see, that's just not true. It's, I, I'm, I say that's an outright lie. I can't exactly prove it because I don't have Janu's French and uh, but I know that I do now once I got access, as I've already said, why it's so important to that uh, to Heim's uh, uh, German edition by published by uh, Werner Jachmann in German. Uh, that is that is an exact translation. Well, no, nothing. You know, translations are a little bit different, but it's uh, it comes it comes out the same. So I, I don't believe that he knows what he's talking about, and he was a fairly young guy when he was saying all this. And his thesis is that a textual analysis between Picker's original German text and Genou's French translation reveals that Genou's version is at best a poor translation and in some instances fraudulent. Well, we're not using Genou's translation. We're using Cameron and Stevens' translation from Jachmann's publication of Heinz Notes, as I said, which is also called the Bormann Ver, Ver America. And um, so a lot of the stuff that people are saying, they're just talking in the air, you know, and if you try to, I didn't always, I didn't have all this information in the past to respond to them, uh, but I do now. So, and uh, Carrier argues that no one who quotes this text is quoting what Hitler actually said. From this little bit that he's come up with, he says, if you quote this text that we're using, uh, you're not you're not quoting what Hitler actually said. Well, I just say bull to that. He's an atheist. He's a far left uh, anti-Hitler type. And the reason he's gotten into this is because he wants, in my opinion, he wants Hitler uh, to be a Christian. He wants people to see Hitler as a Christian because he thinks Christianity is real bad and dumb and and stupid and that then Hitler will be seen as a as a as a dumb stupid person who's who's who was a Christian but who put people to death and who knows what all you know stuff like that it's because he's a totally anti-Christian and I have a couple of examples of things that I worked out that he uh that he says is the right translation or is the wrong translation or whatever I've got all these various translations but I don't I'm not going to go into that because it will just bore people. It will right. take, take way too long. 
But, you know, I think that this carrier is uh, Jewish. Now, he doesn't say he's Jewish. He's got very curly, dark hair. <laughs> he looks Jewish. He looks very much, you know, he's kind of swarthy. And uh, But he's apparently very smart, very smart. And he got his Ph.D. in ancient history from Columbia University, which is the, oh, a very, very a school that Jews attend by, you know, in way high numbers. And uh, But he says in his biography, it never says anywhere uh, what his religion or race is or anything, but he's an American, of course, but he's, it's said that he's had his, his upbringing in a Methodist, in a small Methodist church. Well, that's supposed to make you think he's not Jewish, and, and for at first it affected me, but then I thought, now wait a minute, you know, look at all that dark curly hair of his, really curly, and anybody can be, can say they attended a Methodist church, and he might even have done so. And his family's not necessarily, they might not be, uh, have uh, have uh, behaved as Jews or even wanted to be Jews, thought they were not Jews. But he's got Jew in him, he for sure does. And he also announced in 2015 that he's openly polyamorous. That's a new thing. Um, well, it's from the Greek, means that you uh, have, it's a practice many. of Love. many relationships and people at the same time. You know, and they can be sexual or not sexual, and so he's very, very uh, liberal and into all things like that. And this is the person that is the only one who's a serious, who seriously speaks out about table talk not being authentic. So, so much for that. And of course, Hitler. I wanted to also bring out that he spoke uh, not as much at all. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's very controversial, too. And this is what so many people in the white movement and European people uh, object to very much, his attitude toward Russian Slavs and Stalin. So I've got some quotes here that he made in Table Talk about these subjects, not as much as I had for uh, religion. But on uh, the 5th of uh, July or either that or the 7th of May, 41, he said, by instinct, the Russian does not incline towards a higher form of society. Certain peoples can live in such a way that with them, a collection of family units does not make a whole. And although Russia has set up a social system, which judged by Western standards, qualifies for the designation state, it is not in fact, a system which is either congenial or natural to her. So, um, and then he says um, also, in the eyes of the Russian, the principal support of civilization is vodka. His ideal consists in never doing anything but the indispensable. Our German conception of work, which is work and then more of it, which I found humorous, um, is one that he submits to as if it were a real curse. Well, Hitler here is saying, is indicating he sees a big difference between the Russian and the German. And I, uh, people, I don't know if it's, it's not, he's, he's of course looking at the, uh, kind of the peasant Russian, you know, not so much looking at the ones that are in the, in the city, maybe. But uh, I think that, uh, he has a point there when when it comes to uh, he never thought that the Germans should connect up with the Russians and a lot of people do and a lot of people 
think that today. So I'm just bringing this up because this is one of the things that a lot of people hold against table talk. And that night, mm -hmm. later, that, later that same day at night, he said, what matters is that Bolshevism must be exterminated. In case of necessity, we shall renew our advance wherever a new center of resistance is formed. Um, Moscow, and see, they were doing well then. This is, uh, this is in 41 still, so they were, he's saying they're going to continue to go after Bolshevism. And he says, Moscow, as the center of the doctrine, must disappear from the Earth's surface as soon as its riches have been brought to shelter. There's no question of our collaborating with the Muscovite proletariat. Well, I looked up the, uh, in, in the German version, and the word for exterminated is uh, uh, ausgerottet. Instead of, we usually, we hear ausrotten, ausrotten and ausrotten, but this is ausgerotten because it's a different tense, you know. Must be exterminated. Musa ausgerottet. So there again is that word ausgerot or ausgerotten being used for extermination translated that way by uh, Cameron and Stevens and he says Moscow as the seat of education Moscow as the center of the doctrine but it's also translated as Moscow as the seat of education will disappear from the earth you know this is where he's saying that Moscow and you brought that up to me I had missed this that Moscow, uh, he's saying Moscow has to be gotten rid of because it's the center of Bolshevism. And it's mm -hmm. the center of the, where they educate, where that education is going on. That's it's right. the center of the doctrine. And he's, then he, But he also cares about it. And this is not venality either. He says as soon as its riches have been brought to shelter, they're not going to bomb and destroy. You know, not going to destroy all the culture. He's always so big on culture and all the art and so on that what Moscow had, they're going to bring it all to shelter. So this is, a, this is a, not something that was going to be happening immediately. This was another long-range plan that, uh, that Moscow would, uh, would have to disappear. Um, and so he the, uses that word, to disappear from the earth is, is uh, Erdboden Verschwinden. So, and then he also then says on July 15th that Stalin is one of uh, history's most remarkable figures. And he often praises Stalin after a certain point, you know, as he starts to realize that Stalin is, well, although this is early, they just invaded in June and on July 15th, oh, he's already saying Stalin is one of history's most remarkable figures. In the regions we occupy in the Ukraine, the population is crowding into the churches. That's okay as long as there are no priests. That was referring to that the, uh, the the Ukrainians, they took away all the priests and sent them into the gulag if they didn't kill them, the Russians, the Bolsheviks, and then the people couldn't, uh, they didn't allow them to go to church. They closed the churches, but the Germans came and they opened them. And they said, oh, they're just crowding into the churches, but they don't have any priests. And he says, he was saying that that was good because uh, he doesn't know whether, whether he wants a priest to come back or not because uh, people in the community were uh, carrying out the function of the priests for the people. Mm -hmm. So he didn't mind that. But again, is that there's this uh, 
is suspicion about priests, you know, and what they're up to. They're usually up to uh, being uh, revolutionaries against the revolutionaries. So, and then he says um, he's taught. He brings up pan-Slav activity. Uh, he says he's been reading a report about the Russian opposition thinks it can use the clergy as a base for a departure for pan-Slav activities. See, that's another reason why he didn't like the, the Slavic priests. He didn't want them to come back necessarily or to be active. <clears throat> he was very much against pan-Slav, pan-Slavism, but of course he was for pan-Germanism. So, <laughs> but that's, you know, the way it goes. And the... Uh, but he saw pan-Slavism as a real threat and didn't want the uh, Slavs to organize in a large way because he's, because there you go. He saw he didn't see them as a part of uh, what he was building. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't see them. And that, there's a big, uh, there's a big differential about that today among, among our people. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, and this, this brings up a lot of uh, anger. I know that, but I'm going into it anyway. But what he said, he said the Czechs, the Czechs are the people who will be most upset by the decline of Bolshevism, for it's they who have always looked with secret hope towards Mother Russia. That was this was in September '41, and uh, he says in comparison with Russia, even Poland looked like a civilized country. When that when the soldiers went into Russia, they uh, they found uh, of course they the Russians. The Russian troops had all dispersed, and they had they had left things in a, in a pretty bad way, and they had even had that scorched earth policy. So, but we said the, that the troops, the German troops, were just pretty shocked at what a primitive place Russia was mm-hmm. as they were getting into the interior. And he said even Poland looked civilized compared to them. So that was kind of a, kind of a smart statement, but. You know, he does make this comment that uh, on November 12th that the masses in Russia, or he says in the East, can do the work. He says we, he says we in Europe are, uh, he means Western Europe, are highly civilized people. We're, we're, we have to do all this manual work for ourselves. But he says uh, here on the other side, in the East, we have all these, uh, what he calls them stupid masses, but, you know, that um, that would they should be performing these tasks for us, and we can have them do that. And they will want, And when they are working for us, they will be better fed than they have ever been hitherto, and will also receive the household utensils they need. So he's talking again about. He said uh, Stalin pretends to have been the herald of the Bolshevik Revolution. In actual fact, he identifies himself with the Russia of the Tsars. And he has been merely, and he has merely resurrected the tradition of pan-Slavism. So again, he brings up this pan-Slavism and sees Stalin as uh, being the one who will put that together. And he says Bolshevism is only a disguise for him. He didn't think that he was uh, that sold on that. What he really wanted was just power, power like the Tsars had, and the power of. Uh, Russia, he said, nobody, um, I'm trying to skip through this, but I'm kind of screwing it up that way. He said, in 1933, the wave of the Huns would have broken over our heads. No, he says, if we hadn't seized power in 1933, meaning his, himself, you know, um, the wave of the Huns would have broken over our heads. 
All Europe would have been affected, for Germany would have been powerless to stop it. Nobody suspected it, but we were on the verge of catastrophe. And that's all of the war preparations that the Russians had been making, that they had learned about by, this was dated 5th, 6th January 1942, that they knew uh, what was in store. And that's true. And this, there's a, recently been another argument about this, that Carlos Porter came forth and set the record straight. And I agree with him. He's, he's right about that, that what the Russians had in mind, uh, what the mm -hmm. Soviets had in mind for the Germans and for Europe. Well, he talks now a lot about the Czechs. He's very familiar with the Czechs, and he says, Every Czech is a born nationalist who naturally relates everything to his own point of view. One must make no mistake about him. The more he curbs himself, the more dangerous he is. Of all the Slavs, the Czech is the most dangerous because he's a worker. He has a sense of discipline. He's orderly. He's more of a, he's more of a Mongol than a Slav. To put it briefly, the Czechs are a foreign body in the midst of the German community. There's no room both for them and for us. Well, see, so there's this, uh, they see the Czechs as more of a threat than some of the other, than the Russians or the Poles. And uh, so these are some of the attitudes. Then he says, um, okay, this is a long one, April 5th, 1942. He says, let's avoid attempting the Germanization of our vital space on too great a scale. Let's be cautious, especially with the Czechs and the Poles. According to Himmler, history proves that the Poles have their nationality tattooed on their bodies. They must therefore be kept under control by giving them the strongest possible stiffening of German officers and NCOs and by trying to have them outnumbered by the German elements. So they don't want to give them too much freedom because they feel that they will try to uh, organize themselves again against the Germans. So th this was the future that he was envisioning, no doubt about it. And he says it's very important for the future that the Germans don't mingle with the Poles so that the new Germanic blood may not be transmitted to the Polish ruling class. So there you go, too. You know, he didn't want to give German blood to Slavic people, uh, to their elites especially, because that would just uh, strengthen them and, and make them, uh, he thought, more intelligent. So uh, he, he doesn't trust the common Poles and Czechs, or maybe it's he doesn't trust the, the uh, educated ones. But now we need to go to race and Jews. Uh, that's my last category, Ray. Okay. And of course it's very important and uh, and we know, we really do know what he thought about it. So, uh, exactly. but here's here's something, here's my, my third, and well at first he says, Europe is not a geographic entity, it's a racial entity. I thought that was interesting to consider. Mm -hmm. And And he says, uh, the first First thing above all is to get rid of the Jew, and but he was talking about Romania here, so uh, that he was saying what needed to be done in Romania. But this is still his idea for everywhere that the first thing you have to do is to get rid of the Jew because the Jews are causing all the trouble. And he was real clear about that, and those who are clear about it today understand that. I don't know why anybody should uh, 
find fault with uh, Adolf Hitler for for understanding that at that time, when very few people did. And he says, uh, from the rostrum of the Reichstag, I prophesied to Jewry that in the event of wars proving inevitable, the Jew would disappear from Europe. Uh, that race of criminals has on its conscience the two million dead of the First World War, and now already hundreds of thousands more. Let nobody tell me all the same that we can't park them in the marshy parts of Russia. And this was on October 25th, 1941. And at that time that he's saying that um, we have to get rid of these Jews and uh, we can park them in Russia. You know, we can send them to Russia. And that is what, what they were doing. That's where they, a whole lot of them went. But it's, that's all covered over today. And he says, um, I'll just read the most important sentence here for number four. The Once the conditions of the race's purity are established, it's of no importance whether a man is, is a native of one region rather, rather than the other, whether he comes from Norway or from Austria. So he was saying that within a hundred years or so from now, all the German elite will be a product of the SS. For only the SS practices racial selection. So he was going along with that. I guess he, you know, uh, he and Himmler uh, had this understanding that uh, the, they were producing in the SS the future elite of Germany. But this, this elite was being trained hard to see themselves as, as serving the German nation. And they had uh, very strict rules for their behavior and so on. As you know, you know, like they couldn't steal or do any of these kind of things or hit people that they didn't have any right to hit or go around being harming other people. So they had they were brought they that's why they gave them such strict strict rules in the SS. Is they were expecting these to be the leaders of the future, and they were not supposed to. They're not going to be people who are going to take advantage and. And uh, you know, become uh, corrupt, you might say. So all all forms of corruption were outlawed and, and punished severely. So, and then he says um, that racial doctrine is camouflaged as religion. Oh, he's talking about the Jews. He says the Jew totally lacks any interest in things of the spirit. He has no feeling for art and no sensibility. The Jew has put a religious camouflage over his racial doctrine. We can live without the Jews, but they couldn't live without us. When the Europeans realize that, they'll all become simultaneously aware of the solidarity that binds them together. The Jew prevents this solidarity. He owes his livelihood to the fact that this solidarity does not exist. November 1941, November 5th. Now, this this is real, really nice, you know. He's he's saying that without without the Jews, Europeans will see that they are a solid, you know, that they have solidarity together, and it's the Jew that prevents them from seeing that, and that um, the Jew the Jew owes his livelihood to to preventing that solidarity. To, that, sure. for that solidarity to exist. So this Keep was them fighting among themselves. Yeah. So this is very nice what what he was saying there, being very inclusive of of uh, all Europeans. 
And then he's right. talking about German women married, marrying Jews. Well, this is kind of about how to deal with the Jews in Germany. They talked about the decent Jews, so-called in quotes, and the Jews in the Fourth Commandment, um, peculiarities of the Jewish Aryan half-caste. Anyway, he says, uh, probably many Jews are not aware of the destructive power they represent. So he understands that they don't, they don't all uh, see themselves, but he sees them all as having this same destructive power. He says, if I can accept a divine commandment, it's this one, thou shalt preserve the species. Now, I thought that was just great. So this is the kind of religious ideas that he has. Preserve the species. Right. Yeah, and, and he's uh, primarily, as I said in the very beginning, primarily the racial idea is what he sees as most important because nothing else can work without that. And then he says, the Jew must clear out of Europe. Otherwise, and here's where this word extermination is used, the Jew must clear out of Europe. Otherwise, no understanding will be possible between Europeans. Here's that same thing I just mentioned. Uh, it's the Jew who prevents everything. But if they refuse to go voluntarily, I see no other solution but extermination. And the word German word used is Ausrotung. Ausrotung for extermination, and we know that uh, well. As Hanning Scott says, the best, uh, the better word translation for that is uprooting or that extirpation or something. Um, but getting, you know, getting rid of, but it's not murder, uh, as they want to make it out to be. So he thinks they have to go out. They have to leave Europe. Why should I look at a Jew through other eyes than if? than if he were a Russian prisoner of war. He says, in the POW camps, many are dying. It's not my fault. I didn't want the war. Or the POW camps. Why did the Jew provoke this war, he asked. So he's, um, he's in a sense, washing his hands of it, saying, I'm, you know, I'm not at fault for all of this. But the Jew is preventing everything good between Europeans and Europe. And he has to, he has to leave Europe. He has to be right. put outside of Europe. Let's see. Uh, oh, he's talking about half caste. This is interesting. Okay, this is long, uh, important. First uh, of July, 1942. He says, this confirms the opinion. This is my last one, Ray. This confirms the opinion I have already expressed when speaking about the Englishman Crips, that all half caste families, even if they have but a minute quantity of Jewish blood in their veins produce regularly generation by generation at least one pure Jew remember when he was saying that a warning of the menace that half caste can be oh that's a warning that's a warning of what half why half castes are a menace he says a complete assimilation of foreign blood is not possible that's what he says and the characteristics of the foreign race inevitably continue to reappear our people, therefore, is only harming itself if it accepts half-castes into the Wehrmacht and thus admits them to a position of equality with pure-blooded Germans. We cannot accept the responsibility of burdening our bloodstream with the addition of further foreign elements. Then he says, exceptions in favor of half-castes must therefore be reduced to a minimum. This is, as I said, July 1st, 42. 
Well, you know, it was in the Wehrmacht, not the SS. Uh, the Wehrmacht already had a lot of partial Jews and other things, you know, uh, other partial racial mixes uh, in it. And when they passed these laws um, to, uh, well, I don't know, it didn't affect the military, I guess, but it was supposed to, you know, be followed by everybody. And uh, But these officers, and sometimes generals and so on, they they complained because they had men in their service who they said was, were doing a very good job, and they probably were, and they didn't want to get rid of them. And so, uh, you know, this was an ongoing, this was already going on, so... Hitler says, "Well, you know, uh, send in a send in you want what you want, and I'll I'll look at it." So Hitler, most of the time, approved these these exceptions, you know, that they wanted. So they already already had these soldiers there, and that made sense. But uh, that was doesn't mean that uh, that Hitler was approving. You can tell by what he says here of having um, a lot of foreign people in in fighting in the Wehrmacht. Uh, he he obviously didn't want that. Well, like a lot of people are saying now, they say, oh well, we had all this, uh, you know, mixed mixed people fighting in the uh, in the war. Well, by by 1940, a lot of that was put together in 1944, and uh, by then, you know, I guess they needed everything. If you get it, didn't make much difference. Uh, you know, you could sort that out later. <clears throat> but for in uh, in the beginning, though, he. He really, he's really trying to uphold all this racial, all these racial rules as much as possible. And I think this passage shows that. So those are the things I wanted to bring up, Ray, that uh, I think are controversial about tabletop. Sure. Well, uh, you know, that's a good summation and certainly touched on so many things and, uh, you think well to ask if there's any listeners wanting to call in and call yeah, in yeah. questions? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do. Uh, the, the phone number, the call-in number is 323-642-1206. And uh, if you call in, you know, and then you can uh, stay on the line afterwards. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear. I'm sorry, I forgot all about callers when I went on and on like that. I, I didn't know, know it would take so long. But uh, we really would like to hear from some of you if if uh, if you want to make a comment or ask a question about this book and these things that I've brought up are mostly what people want to say something about. So uh, we'll we're ready to to get your call. I hear some uh, sound in the background. I don't suppose that's you, Ray. <laughs> you know, I live across the street from a huge oh. hospital, and their helicopter landing pad is right across the street from me, and I have thought often of, you know, those are the things, when they come in, they do make a noise, and so on nights uh, uh, that we have the show, I'm going to have to keep my windows closed, and my windows are closed, but you could still pick that up. That was a helicopter just landed uh, well, there next funny, to the you know, hospital. the sounds are so different. It didn't sound anything like that. It sounded like you were, somebody was shoving something along a table or something, and I thought it might be, here's somebody who's who's uh, called in, and uh, a new okay. caller, but they've only got their listening, their uh, headphones lit up. Oh. Not, their mic is not lit up. This is a 315 uh, area code, 
Uh, maybe they don't know that they have to uh, click one, or I'm just going to click the mic here and bring them online. Hi there, caller. Hello. Yes. Hi, caller. Hello? You're you're on here with me. Oh, very good. Um, I just wanted to thank you both for such a wonderful series. It's been tremendous, and it's a wonderful resource. And early in, earlier in the show, when you were discussing the question of the authenticity, uh, it just came to my mind that um, Hitler was such a tremendously eloquent speaker um, mm -hmm. from his earliest days that it's just natural that they would have recorded the things that he said. It, I mean, they'd been with him for many years, and mm -hmm. um, they would have realized that the things he said would be appreciated in the future, and so it's a natural thing that they would have recorded these. But I thought everything you said was on target, and again, thank you so much. I'll try and get a donation in one of these days, but it's been a real joy. Well, hold on a pleasure. minute, uh, if you don't mind, uh, holding on for a minute. I'd like to uh, go into this just a little bit, because then you sure. might want to say something more about it. Um, you know, uh, it was I think it was uh, Borman who had the idea of recording them, but it was probably mentioned by a number of people. And I do know of a story by Herman Giesler um, when he, it must have been in 42, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, that he, mm -hmm. uh, he, he went, well, he stayed over. He was visiting with uh, Hitler, and he stayed over for the first time for one of these uh, after-dinner talks, you know, one of these dinners in the Fuhrer yep. bunker with the whole mm -hmm. group and, and he was yep. sitting there and Hitler after dinner and Hitler was going on and on about something and he was so impressed. Of course he had talked yeah. to Hitler a lot on his own but he and he he says he uh he whispered to Borman, he said, This is just great stuff. Somebody it yeah. should be recorded for the future. Yeah. And Borman yeah. told him said to him, uh, oh I've been I've already been working on that. That's what Borman yeah. said to him. So uh, yeah. maybe they were already recording that at the time, but, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people, as you said, had that idea. Do you want to say anything, Ray? I want to thank that gentleman for his kind words uh, and his excellent mm -hmm. uh, observation about uh, uh, the table talk and, and uh, that Hitler's eloquence and those words needed to be put down for posterity. But I really appreciate the kind comments, and I thank you for calling in. And not at all. Again, the thanks is all from the public, and I hope you get some support. Um, it's been tremendous, and thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, we're Bye glad night. you liked Thank it. You. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, isn't that uh, – I know that there's many, many people like him who have uh, truly uh, mm -hmm. enjoyed this series, and uh, I, I hope we'll get a couple more calling in yet. So we're here, sure. ladies and gentlemen. If you want to uh, – I guess I'll, I'll cut this call off. I guess I'll hang it up. Okay. Because he didn't hang it up himself or something. Um, no, we just got your friend from uh, Houston. If he wants to say anything, he's welcome to do so, but he doesn't have to. But I could uh, see the, the the system is different now because the the mic is not lighting up. Just the listening, and if if he's there and he wants to say something, I I have to click on the mic. So I think I'll go ahead and do that and just see if he wants to. If okay. he doesn't, he doesn't have to say a word. Okay. Right. Hello there, uh, listener. Uh, did you want to say anything? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, 
from a lady rather than a man, but uh, I felt like that during the time that y'all were reading all these, um, when Ray was reading it before, I was I got to be there and listen to some of it, and it was very good and very informative, and I just really appreciate y'all doing all this. It was very, very good. Well, thank you very much. It's so nice to hear from a woman. Uh, I yeah. just assumed that you were a man. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't going to say any different because I wanted her to, to surprise you, Carolyn. <laughs> well, she did. What a, what a nice southern accent. Well, so, uh, I appreciate you listening uh, tonight and, and uh, you know, glad to have you as part of the audience. And, and I know you've heard some of this before, too, and uh, appreciate your interest. Yeah, very much. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. And and uh, if anybody else wants to call in, um, you just she's just staying on the line now, and uh, listening okay. to the rest of the show. So let's see uh, if we get any anyone else who wants to call in. And if you, uh, you know, it'll be afterwards. People will write comments and say, oh, this, this, and that. But they don't want. Uh, I would like it if they'd call in, mm-hmm. even if they want to uh, complain about anything that I. Sure. Uh, that I've said, or any of the things that Hitler said, that I read. But in the meantime, Ray, do you do you have any comment on? You can add anything to uh, to these controversial topics, or would you just rather go on to some other topic that we didn't have covered yet? Well, uh, I guess kind of on uh, the the last thing you said there, but it it's totally about National Socialism, and it was the next to the last page of the book, uh, and uh, it was like the principles of National Socialism in financing and and the money uh, part of running a nation. And uh, he made those points uh, about uh, financing these huge, uh, it says hundreds of thousands of marks for the construction of a road, and certainly that so many roads were built and and, uh, environmental improvements uh, had to be financed some way. And Hitler had come up with the way to do that without borrowing from the world bankers, if you want to call them that, and indebting uh, his country. Uh, As he said here, uh, this way, their way of financing a project is foolish in the extreme. The life of this road in question would be some 15 years, but the amortization of the loan, the capital involved, would continue for 80 years. So he applied National Socialist principles to that, where a nation has control of its own money. They don't have to pay interest to these outside people. And uh, in essence, uh, Carolyn, that is the root of why National Socialism and Adolf Hitler's Germany had to be thoroughly, thoroughly destroyed because he committed the ultimate sin of breaking away uh, and putting the money supply of Germany back in the hands of the German nation and taking it away from the Jew. And he hit the Jew where it hurts the Jew the worst, and that's in the pocketbook. And so uh, that's, to me, one of the primary selling points of National Socialism is that your nation is not in a debt, eternal debt. Your individuals are not in eternal debt. You buy a house for a 30-year loan, 
uh, and you pay 30 years on something that should be paid in maybe 10. But then if you sell a house after 25 years, the person that buys it from you, they're, they're going to be paying 30 years on that same house. So it's kind of a, a scam and a con game. And mm-hmm. National Socialism broke up that monopoly. And, well, let me uh, give and, the phone uh, number one more time, Ray, and one, then you can continue. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's 323-642-1206. And you know what you're saying here brings up brings to my mind something I was thinking about since Monday night, and that is that, you know, you generally – think in terms of uh, the economics, national socialist economics and so on, is the number one uh, most important thing about Hitler and national socialism. And having Scott does that too, he'll say, well, it's, you know, it's the economic system and it'll go on and on. And I think in terms of, uh, well, I realize that's very important. I still think the issue of race is the is the well, number one well, thing I'm, I'm with Hitler, and that's why that, I guess yeah. I find quotes like I do and say, well, he said this, yeah. you know. But, I mean, we all find... You know, you and I are... So, yeah, yeah we're on the same page on that. There's no doubt about it. What I bring up the economic part of it because the economic platform of National Socialism was what made the rest of the nations gang up on and destroy them. Uh, they could have put up with the uh, anti-Christian or non-Christian attitude. They could have put up with the racial supremacy, if you want to call it. How that, about the anti-Jewishness, though? How about the uh, how about that? Well, the biggest act of anti-Jewishness was taking control of the mark of their own uh, the the Reichsbank, uh, becoming in control of it and taking it out of their hands. So, uh, you know, that's just kind of, you know, the way I think about it. That's why it's very important to me to point that out because, uh, you know, they might have left him alone, but you're right. Uh, any Anything uh, like reducing the number of Jews in the universities or in the field of medicine and things like this and and uh, newspaper owning and such as this, yeah, mm-hmm. that, uh, that would have made them mad as hell too, uh, and it was, and that's... Uh, Another reason for the vindictiveness against the German civilians and ca- and uh, soldier prisoners of war after the war, that vindictiveness, that hate uh, to uh, to the German people, because uh, Germany tried to take back control of its institutions and its money supply. Well, right. So that it, everything is is actually dealing with the Jews, and everything hurts the Jews. So the whole economic system hits the Jews, uh, mm-hmm. but also, as I brought up uh, on Monday, the uh, the uh, all the various sources, I found there's some more of them that I discovered from Nicholas Kolostrom's book uh, that um, mm-hmm. where, where the Jews said from 1933 through 1939 and then into 1940, I, from a lot of sources that they were at war with Germany, and it was a holy war, and they were not going to allow the Germans to become a powerful nation again. They were not going to allow the Germans to become an important nation in Europe. They were they were at war with the Germans, the German people, and all of this kind of thing, very, very nasty. 
So, and they said, this is, uh, you know, all all Jews everywhere are involved in this, and, and uh, yes. uh, we're not fighting in the war, but we're coming right behind you. <laughs> we're supporting Britain and so on, and we know how Jewish, uh, how the Jewish uh, elites uh, control, how much they control Britain. And so it, it was, a, the Jews were against Hitler right from the start. Uh, of course, they knew that he was doing his, his uh his uh, economic program started even before uh, 1933 because he was talking about it and he was studying with people and he was announcing it and so on. So everybody knew what he had in mind. The, you know, I guess they had to build it up and they had to allow the war to get started and then they had to just keep working at it until they could get enough, uh, until they could get probably the United States into the war. And, yeah. wear down, and wear down Germany over a period of time. But um, it, all, it all fits in there together, I guess, because the whole racial problem is mainly the Jews, and the whole economic problem is mainly right. the Jews. So it's That's all the same correct. thing. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And it's so hard, and it gets boring, too, when you just say, well, it's all about the Jews. You know, it gets kind of boring, and people would like to hear something else. But it always comes down to that, and that's one thing that Hitler understood so well. Uh, so few understood that as well as he did, and I, you know that's another place where he was just uh, uh, so sharp. Mhm. Mhm. You know, that's a good point. Uh, it all comes down to the Jews because uh, the turmoil in this country. Uh, you know, like in the 1950s when the uh, those. Uh, those people founded the uh, John Birch Society, uh, and it was it started to be filled up with concerned citizens, a lot of conservatives and all, because of the, the seemingly uh, communistic leanings and such as this going on in the government. And these people wanted to form an organization of patriots and get something done. And uh, and uh, one of their uh, brightest members was uh, the late Revelo P. Oliver, a uh, brilliant man, uh, wrote mm-hmm. many, many articles and all, and and he was a wonderful speaker, and so they were going to let him speak uh, for the organization, and at his uh, talk, he started saying, you got to look and see who's behind the, dr- the driving force here behind getting rid of uh, Joseph McCarthy, uh, Admiral Forrestal, whatever. And they are Jews. Oh, my goodness. They jerked him aside and said, never again will you mention anything like that. We don't do that. That's that's uh, hatred of the poor Jews who've gone through the Holocaust. And they told him, you can't speak for us anymore if you dare say anything about the Jews. And their little public, uh, a publication, American Opinion, I think it was called, never, ever linked the Jews to any of these things going on. Uh, Castro in Cuba, uh, things like this. And so, what you just said, it basically boils down to the people behind the scenes, uh, no matter how you cut it, if you, if you want to get to the root of the problem, that's where you go. And as you say, Hitler was smart enough to know that and uh, educated his people to it. So, uh, you, you can't be anti Even then, you know, he, he, even then he, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't keep them from, from destroying him. Uh, now, uh, you know, it's just amazing when, from this story, you, what you're saying here, Ray, that 
that that, that, that these Jews can be so powerful in this world, and it it seems oh, yeah. as though uh, you know they really are, and there's no equal power to them. Hitler tried to make an, another power against them, and all the other whites uh, didn't cooperate with him. All the other Europeans right. and Eastern Europeans, Western Europeans, I don't care, Americans, Australians, all of them, they wouldn't, they, because they're all uh, were too controlled. It was only Germany oh, yeah. that had that had yeah. freed itself from that. But uh, it makes you come to the conclusion that uh, that there's no way to do anything about it. Uh, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. You know, when I uh, when people uh, complain about so many people have uh, criticisms of Adolf Hitler. So much of it from from white guys say, well, but. You know, uh, Hitler uh, was foolish to to think that he could beat the Jews like that. I mean, he took sure. on the Jews too much, and look what they did to him. And now they just, they, you know, we, we could have had some, maybe we could have made some headway if we went about it slowly. But the way Hitler did it, well, now we're, we've gone backwards in time. You know, we'll, we're at such a disadvantage we can never get anywhere. They blame Hitler for that. Well, if it could, right. you know... If they've got that much power, I don't care how slowly you take it. You're not going to get anywhere. They're no, just going to undo right. everything you do as you go along. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they're doing. So this is the this is a tremendous question. And like you say, you know, it's so taboo. It's so taboo. And as many people as bravely come out and write this or that, um, they uh, they they're not able to really. We think, well, it's time, you know, it's going to happen. This this will turn the tide. No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because they've right. it, got too much power. I hate to be so pessimistic. No, that's, Hitler that's wasn't being pessimistic. Active. See, he was an optimist, and, and uh, yeah. he did everything he could. Well, about five years ago, uh, Mark Glenn and maybe two or three other people organized the No More Wars for Israel conference to be held in uh, Orange County, California. And I was asked to be one of the speakers, uh, as was Frederick Tobin uh, uh, and and other people. And this was going to be a really, really nice conference, and we flew out there, and and, uh, the Jews did their best to sabotage it. Uh, The Marriott, who was going to host our conference, all of a sudden came to us and said, no, you people can't meet here. We don't want your kind around. And so they shut they shut down our conference initially, but Mark, bless his heart, he found a Greek Orthodox church that was willing to allow us to use the auditorium. And so, uh, you know, we had our conference, but a lot of our people were told when they checked in that it was over. Uh, nobody was, uh, you know, it was been canceled. And uh, Mike Piper... Are you there? Yeah, I'm listening. Oh, okay. Uh, Michael Collins Piper has written the most definitive book on the Kennedy assassination to ever be written. And in it, he documents the involvement of the Israeli Mossad in the killing of JFK. Mm-hmm. And Mike would be asked to speak uh, around the country about his book. And they shut down many of the university appointments that he had saying, we don't want a person like that talking at this university because there were Jews on the board of directors or there were Jews who contributed, and we're, we'll pull our money if you have this guy there. So 
that's the power that they exert. American people don't believe that. You tell them, hey, those people shut down your, your conferences and everything. If it's something they don't want out, they will economically and arm twist and, and everything else and get it well, shut down. Well, we don't want that stuff either. We don't like that. Yeah. We're against that. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that's, that's how at any rate. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish somebody well, had an answer to it. <laughs> But you know, yeah, when you start talking about it, you just end up down in a in a hole because there's really nowhere to go. Yeah. Right. Well, I had my my little phone here starting to bip at me like it needs charging. Okay. But I uh, I wanted to personally sign off with a with a short quote from the book. Okay. Uh, and it's simple but profound. Hitler says on the 23rd of March, 1944, midday, One of my greatest delights has always been to picnic quietly somewhere on the roadside. It was not always easy, for our column of cars, cars would often be pursued by a crowd of motorists, eager to see their Fuhrer off-duty, and we had to employ all sorts of ruses to shake off these friendly and well-meaning pursuers. And he says, on one occasion, I remember a family out gathering mushrooms came suddenly upon our picnic party, and in a few moments, these kindly folk had alerted the neighboring village, and the whole population was surging towards us, filling the air with their shouts of Heil. Now, does that uh, an example for a uh, police state mad dictator? No, that was the love of the people for their Fuhrer, and, uh, and and it is simple but profound. And Hitler even deflected that, Carolyn. Remember, he said uh, these people weren't yelling for me as a person; they were cheering uh, for the uh, leader of the state. It was the office that these people were cheering for, and not for me as a man. Uh, it, it was what I stood for. I was the German state, so. Anyway, I uh, I wanted to end my part of it on that, and I appreciate being a part of this project. You know, maybe we'll do it again someday. Well, Ray, I appreciate you so much, and I thank you uh, so much for the great contribution you made and your absolutely superb reading voice. You're, you have a great voice, and it's uh, good that you had the opportunity. You could use it here for this for this project, and I've enjoyed every bit of it. Um, and uh, I'm going to miss the uh, the music. <laughs> so I think it's time to play the outro music. We also want to thank our listeners over all this, uh, these uh, over a year's time that have been faithfully listening, and I know they've enjoyed it. And so we've now uh, tackled something that nobody else has really tackled and has been a very controversial type of uh, of. Uh, uh, subject, the, the Hitler's Table Talk, and I think we've added quite a bit of understanding to it, and we'll see what happens from here. Right. We'll see what, you know, how much how much it's still talked about and if people's have, if their minds have been changed at all. So, thanks to everyone, uh, exactly. listeners, and, uh, and you, and I, and all, everybody involved here, and we are now going to close out on Hitler's Table Talk with our outro music. That's it for tonight. That's it for the for this series. Good night. Thank you folks and all the best for me too. Good night. Mm-hmm.